Hello, welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. I am your host, David McHale. If this is the first episode you're listening to, welcome. If you have been listening for a period of time, we thank you for your support. You can find Capital Musings on our website, uncdf.org, where you could find all of our episodes. And you can also find us on Spotify and iTunes. Today, we have a great guest with us. And actually, before I, I introduce this guest, I want to talk a little bit about why we have this guest more in the context of this series of podcasts that we're going to be conducting over the next few months. For those who might be aware, on June 26th, we acknowledged or we commemorated a UN Charter Day. That is the anniversary that the Charter of the UN, the bedrock document of the United Nations, was signed in San Francisco. That was on June 26, 1945, fresh off really the embers, if you will, of World War II. And obviously with an eye and a vision towards creating an organ that can advance international peace and security. Later on this year, on October 24th, we will acknowledge UN Day. That is the day when the UN Charter was ratified, essentially bringing the UN into fruition and becoming a reality. So between now and that day, our podcast, Capital Musings, will be dedicating this platform to bringing guests on, as we always do, but with a specific focus on a conversation, on having conversations around an essential question. What is the role of the UN going to be after 2020, in the next 10 years, the next 30 years, the next 75? What is the role of the UN in a world that is fundamentally different from the world that it was created and brought into in 1945? And we're going to bring a lot of really smart, talented, innovative, experienced uh, people to this podcast who are going to provide their insights based on their experience in global policy generally, in global markets, and with the UN in particular to help us answer that question. It's a complex question. It'll be a complex answer. And we need great thinkers to help, help us go get through that. And one of those great thinkers is my guest today, Munir Ibrahim. Munir is Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for TruePic, a technology company that specializes in image authenticity. From 2009 to 2017, Munir was a Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State and key advisor to several ambassadors. Munir served in a variety of posts, including in New York at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. So Munir brings a very, very unique profile to this particular question. Because of his role in the State Department, because of his role in the context of the U.S. mission to the United Nations, and I would argue just as importantly, because of his role now in the private sector with an innovative company that UNCDF is currently involved in a strategic partnership, which we will talk about later on in the show. But with that, I will say, Munir, welcome, and thanks for setting aside the time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I mean, quite the robust introduction you got, if I may say so myself. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> but really, thanks again. For <clears> my pleasure. So for regular listeners of our podcast, we've one of the quote unquote traditions, if you will, is that we've had, we've reserved the penultimate question, the second to last question for our guests to talk about the journey that brought them to where they were. We're going to actually change it up a bit because... Your professional journey is actually quite relevant to, again, addressing this question 
of what does the UN of the future actually mean. So I'm going to ask that you take a few moments to share, again, your professional journey that ultimately brought you to the State Department, that brought you to the U.S. mission, and then ultimately to TRUPEC. Sure. Well, going back, I was always a, a student of international affairs and political science and drawn to how nations worked, how they interacted with each other, how geopolitical and societal and historical conflicts were addressed. Obviously, significant conflicts like World War I, you know, reshaped the Middle East with early state formation and really changed the trajectory of the world. Nearly 30, 40 years later, you had World War II that birthed the multilateral system that we use today. And these were always just fascinating aspects of life to me and something I was drawn to studied it, worked in it in a variety of areas. And, you know, when I was finishing up grad school, I had a chance to kind of turn on the TV one day and I saw a young senator in a Democratic debate. Barack Obama was debating Hillary Clinton at the time. And I uh, was listening to it. It happened to be on foreign policy. And it inspired me to, you know what, let me look into the State Department and kind of throw in an application. Turned out, the day after I actually watched that debate, the application was the deadline for the Foreign Service. I applied, and after a bunch of hoops and nearly a year and a half later, I was accepted into the Foreign Service, and I started my career there in 2009. When I joined the State Department in 2009, my first post was Damascus, Syria, in which... First post. And I was incredibly excited. Obviously, Syria is an incredibly important country historically, you know, geographically. It, it shares a border with, with Jordan and Turkey and Iraq and Israel. It is just incredibly important. It was also particularly interesting because I was arriving at a time, the beginning of the Obama administration was a time of engagement. And um, President Obama uh, recess appointed the first ambassador to Syria in quite a long time. I actually arrived before the ambassador to Damascus in the summer of 2010. He came uh, several months later. It was Robert Ford. And it was a really interesting and historical time to be a part of the State Department. There was this kind of new way of thinking, particularly when it came to the Middle East, and there was an excitement there. Soon after, nearly about six, seven months after I arrived, I was there as the junior officer. I was covering issues related to civil society, religious freedom, the political opposition, things of that nature, following the internal domestic politics of Syria, which prior to the Arab Spring was almost nil. Uh, <laughs> there was one party, it was the Ba'ath Party, and there was one ruling administration, and that was pretty much it. And then, you know, with my luck or, or someone might even say misfortune, I am in Damascus, Syria in 2010 and 2011. And the Arab Spring starts in Tunisia in late 2010. And it ripples across the Middle East. And I'm watching, you know, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen is starting up. And I'm watching this from Damascus and I'm starting to see little 
changes and cracks and fissures going on in the domestic policies and politics that I covered. So just to be clear, when you start in Damascus, you're a junior officer. We are pre-Arab Spring. Correct. This is basically in the context of pre-Arab Spring, Assad, Syria. And then as you're settled in, all of a sudden the ground beneath your feet completely changed and changed throughout the region. And I'm sure that your mission and your work changed as a result. Absolutely. In fact, when I arrived to Syria, some of the biggest issues facing the United States and Syria and even the international community was, you know, Iran's weapons program was a big issue, but Iraqi refugees that were in Syria from the Iraq war, but also Israeli-Syrian peace. That was actually something that was within arm's reach. And there was an entire team led by Ambassador Fred Hoff, who was the deputy to George Mitchell, who was working on Israeli-Palestinian peace. And Damascus and Israel were actually quite close. These were the major issues that were being focused on at the time. And here I am, this junior officer, kind of raising my hand saying, um... Starting to see some things here that are a little odd. And it was just incredible, sad in many ways, uh, frightening in many ways, uh, historical in many ways to see it transpire on the ground. I went to protest. I saw some pretty ugly sights of brutality against peaceful protesters, arrests. I've, I've run from protests with gunshots going off to my back. I knew many opposition leaders, human rights lawyers, civil society leaders that were arrested and some killed uh, who were friends of mine uh, in Syria. So to put it mildly, my first post with the Department of State was in, I would argue, one of the most decade-defining, perhaps even larger than that, conflicts that has certainly shaped the last almost 10 years of Middle East policy and thinking, and certainly bled into the UN system. Sure. And thank you for starting there, although that's also where your diplomatic career had begun. And thank you for sharing that story. It's both fascinating and tragic how you go from one portfolio that's ostensibly promising and hopeful to just a completely different scenario altogether, including obviously massive loss of life. In that regard, and I don't think this is a conversation that's alien to you, I think that for those who look into foreign policy, who are students of foreign policy, and who think about the role of institutions in the global architecture, including obviously, for that matter, the United Nations, Syria is an event that uh, triggers questions. And one of them is, what does it speak? How does it speak to the role of the U.N.? And of course, we're aware that there are those who look to Syria as, in fact, an example of the limits of the UN, more than the UN's power, maybe even the UN's relevance in the future. But what I'm going to ask you is is actually the opposite. What is it, based on both your experience in Syria and obviously that you have seasoned experience within the UN system through the US mission, what is it now reflecting about on Syria that makes you see, in fact, the utility of the UN in a current context and looking to the future? Excellent question. I would be lying if I myself, certainly observers, most of all the Syrians, 
were not at times, perhaps oftentimes, frustrated with the UN system and its reaction to Syria. But I do unpack that a little bit because at the end of the day, particularly when it comes down to the Security Council, it is really up to the member states. They are the ones that mandate the rules that either agree or disagree on UN action. The UN itself does not simply take action on issues related to peace and security. So, I mean, that's an important point. You can be at times frustrated with the UN organization, but, you know, on some of the major issues, it's usually one or more member states that is blocking action. And that is not something you can really fault the UN for. In terms of its utility, at the end of the day, and my my former boss, Samantha Power, used to say this, She used to say, if the UN went away tomorrow, we would have to rebuild it the day after. And that is to say, even when things were not necessarily working or impacting or affecting change on the ground in horrible conflicts like Syria, the UN was the only place. And when I say UN, just it's multilateral family, whether New York, Geneva, Vienna, etc. But the UN is the only place that brings together the nations of the world to actually have a discussion. Those discussions might be completely political. They may come down from capital. They may be at times, you know, farcical, but they're happening. And what that does, it reduces the risk of miscalculation. And that I personally believe cannot be underestimated. So, I mean, that has to be the starting point of its utility. It is literally the global public square by which nations can interact and have hard discussions. That's one. Then on the daily basis, even beyond Syria, the UN is so much larger than the Security Council, which tends to dominate the headlines because that is dealing with matters of international peace and security. But the UN, its subsidiaries, its humanitarian work, its development work, its reporting, its position as a neutral and objective observer to deliver information is just so incredibly important because without it, what you would have are different narratives that just fly across the world with no semblance of a referee. That's not to say that issues like Syria, you know, there were times that I thought the UN could have actually produced much more salient and powerful and blunt reporting to really call out bad actors where it might have taken some time to soften language, to appease different member states and things of that nature. It is not perfect, but if you're going to ask me what its utility is, one, it brings countries together to actually have discussions to reduce miscalculation. And two, it has so many subsidiary utilities that keep this world running that it would just take too long for me to even list. It's actually a great point you bring up about the ability of the UN to position itself as the arbiter, the referee, if you will, in the context of information, which is obviously critical. You know, from the standpoint of UNCDF, where we really see that arbiter role in the way that we can position ourselves is is in the context of market development. And so if you want to create a market ecosystem, let's say you want to build digital ecosystems, it's 
you have to be able, it might be easier to bring one mobile network operator, but it might not be the most fair thing to do. And particularly if you want to create competitive markets. And so how many entities are out there that can convene a number of competing stakeholders? It's different about convening different stakeholders. But when you bring convening competing stakeholders yeah. and able to align them in a common mission, the UN has shown itself to have a distinct singular capability to do that. There aren't many other institutions that can do that. So just to extend that point. Um, so moving from Syria, your career continues and you find yourself ultimately at the U.S. mission at the UN. So just tell us a little bit about the transition, but I think just from a general standpoint, that we'd love to hear from you about kind of the dynamics of working for the U.S. mission in terms of the regular relationship with the U.N. It was fascinating to go from bilateral posts, you know, uh, working at a U.S. embassy to a specific country or at the State Department in Washington to working in a multilateral environment where you are interacting with hundreds, quite literally, of stakeholders, different countries, your colleagues from all over the world. I particularly focused on the Security Council, uh, particularly on the Syria conflict, but I also did work on Afghanistan, Iraq, and Burma as well as it kind of entered into the Security Council. So it was an interesting transition. Candidly, I loved it. As an aside, before I even got to New York to work at the UN, there's a, a running belief in the State Department that the best diplomats you're ever going to meet from any country are often sent to New York to work at the United Nations. And I truly believe that. I mean, the caliber and the quality of every country's diplomat that I worked with in New York at the UN, they were just incredible. Just smart, sophisticated, really diplomatic, to say the least. So that's something that immediately strikes you. You are dealing with some of the world's best. And you have to kind of figure out how to reach levels of consensus and compromise more so than you would in a bilateral effort. So obviously, on an issue like Syria, obviously the United States has its very strongly held views on Syria, and other security members have their very strong held views on Syria. But what you ultimately have to drive at is what piece of legislation or Security Council resolution or press statement or whatever it is you may be negotiating, PRST, what level of language and parameters are you willing to work with and propose and take back to your capital to actually get change or to move the ball forward, be much like you would see in the Capitol, like in, in Washington, right? How, how could two political parties actually reach compromise? But now you're working with 15 on the Security Council, right? So it's a really interesting dynamic, challenging as a diplomat, but incredibly rewarding when you actually can push the ball forward in certain areas. Yeah, I bet. And actually, a, a mutual colleague of ours, uh, Esther Pansloan, who was the inaugural guest of this podcast remarks about her time, in fact, from the U.S. side, negotiating the Sustainable Development Goals. I think to now have a framework of 17 goals that we're seeing, obviously, not just buy-in from the U.N. side, but also from the private sector side, I think, and driven in large part really by, again, that U.S.-U.N. relationship, as well as, obviously, other member states, I think you can do more than just 
create incredible initiatives, you can create global agendas. Absolutely. You know, that can align nations as a whole. So I definitely abide by that point. On that point, though, I, I have to say, I had the honor of working with Esther. She is yeah. my hero, and yeah. she gets a ton more credit than I ever could. I worked with 15 countries on the Security Council. Esther worked with the world, <laughs> literally every member in the General Assembly. So she achieved far greater negotiation skills than I ever could. Oh, no, of course. I mean, the stories of the SDG negotiations are fascinating in and of themselves. So, and again, I think the SDGs are also a great example in this regard. I mean, think about how difficult it is to align the unanimity of member states behind a global agenda of 17 goals that's supposed to encapsulate basically what we envision a future world to look like, a future world to work governmentally, economically, socially. It's remarkable. And, and again, I think for all of the, for the criticisms that are levied on the UN, I think it's easy to, eat, to even overlook something like the SDGs as, as ambitious as those are. So your experience, I mean, it's, and again, we spoke at the top about your unique profile because so much of your experience in the context of global policy really speaks to, I guess, what I might call traditional security, traditional peace and security, things of that nature, obviously including uh, the work you were doing uh, in Syria, both pre and post Arab Spring. You're now in a new context, specifically involving TruePick and your technology. I think separate from the company and the product, I'd love to hear from you to what extent there's a connection between your experience in the realm of foreign policy and how that informs your work today. Because I think it'll give us a window in terms of what we can look to in terms of the UN in the future. But I'd love to hear about your experience. Sure. It's a great question. In fact, a lot of people ask me, so you were a diplomat for almost a decade and you worked and studied diplomacy pretty much all your life and now you're in tech? How did that happen? And it's, it's a very good question. And the answer is it's because of my time as a diplomat. If I was not a diplomat and I was not in Syria, I would probably not be in tech because what I saw, uh, not only on the ground Syria, but actually more specifically my time at the UN or at the US mission to the United Nations was I saw the intersection of technology, particularly images and videos that come out of conflict zones, particularly non-permissive ones that, you know, you cannot enter into becoming staples and critical to international decision-making. And this nexus of technology and geostrategic decision-making was getting very close and moving closer together while I was there. And I would say it's only accelerated since I've left in 2017. The fact that the world makes decisions off of online information, oftentimes, uh, images and videos oftentimes, and the need for that information to be accurate is key. And we see this play out in so many different environments. It could be domestic, it could be international, it could be from conflict zones, it, it could be even from a consumer level, what you purchase online, who you're dating online. All of these information, financial or trust transactions are happening largely based off of online information. 
And that is literally what drove me from diplomacy into technology to figure out how we can leverage technology to provide more accurate information to decision makers and restore truth in so many of these areas, particularly conflict zones, in which bad actors like to erode truth, erode fact, simply by saying, well, it's non-permissive, we can't trust any of these images, videos, and information coming out of the conflict zone. So that means we really don't know what's happening. And that means the United Nations cannot act or the international community cannot act. It was a very simple but effective argument that I saw play out in Syria, but Syria is not the only victim. Similar things happen in Yemen, in Burma, Venezuela, etc. So that is kind of how I made that connection in my mind. And I've seen it only accelerate. It's interesting that you say that, because I think that as we look to the future, and I think obviously international peace and security, territorial sovereignty are still core interests of the United Nations, but I look no further than COVID, look no further than WHO, look no further than, frankly, the all-of-agency approach from the UN to confront COVID-19. Yeah. And it becomes clear very quickly that... The global public square element of the UN exceeds just conflict prevention. And just to take it a step further beyond uh, to your point about ensuring that we're seeing truth on the ground and for that matter, addressing global pandemics, I think the interest of sustainable development. And I think what everyone can agree on is that what we need to achieve sustainable development and not just in the New Yorks and places of developed markets, but really in developing economies in the least developed countries in particular where our mandate, it requires capital and it requires innovation and it requires those things at scale. And that really requires the private sector. So my question to you is, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about our partnership, but how do you see the role of the UN as an accelerator, as a partner uh, of the capital and the innovation alongside the private sector to deliver on these sustainable development gains, which are really defining our agenda for the next 10 years? Look, it's a great question. Candidly, this is one of the things that I try to even push forward at my time, at least within the Security Council, is I think the UN can be incredibly impactful in this regard and can do more. I think some of its subsidiaries, uh, like UNCDF, like Global Pulse, like UNICEF Innovation, are doing amazing, really, really cutting-edge work on leveraging technology, leveraging pilot programs with the private sector to deliver better services, expand services, and get these tools in the hands of some of the most vulnerable populations in the world. I think that can be scaled particularly uh, should the Secretariat and the Security Council and the GA really amplify that effort in many ways. I think that a lot of the humanitarian work that OCHA does can be amplified and supplemented through technology. There are so many ways that some of the more arcane, outdated processes that the UN still employs can be modernized to leverage technology in the face of exactly what you noted, not only conflict. COVID highlights a very new sort of threat that we're seeing when the entire 
global population ceases human interaction, they are relying on virtual interaction. So thereby, the enhancement and the embrace of virtual and technology is going to be necessary. And I do think the UN can do a ton more in this regard. So, and I think in that regard, clearly you saw in UNCDF and UNCDF saw in TruePIC uh, the opportunity to synergize our uh, collective capabilities from our standpoint that includes our being on the ground in uh, 31 of the 47 LDCs. But from your vantage point, I'm just curious, so talk a little bit about our partnership and what is it about UNCDF that made you think that there was the potential for an impactful partnership? Well, we have a wonderful partnership in which we are honored to be partners with UNCDF, particularly because of your mission, but also your team are just so great. Our technology is an image verification technology, and that is given to the UNCDF, and the UNCDF can choose to deploy this technology as it sees fit, whether it is documenting projects, tracking and auditing programs, monitoring and evaluation. The idea is that it gives the organization verified high-trust images and videos from anywhere in the world. I particularly thought of the UNCDF as a great potential partner, specifically because you work in the LDCs. The LDCs, by definition, are oftentimes remote, hard to get to, perhaps infrastructure may not be as developed as wealthier countries and cities, thereby monitoring, evaluation, auditing, information gathering around some of the most rural parts of LDCs is incredibly costly. Perhaps it could be risky in terms of security. It could consume a lot of time and exhaust resources. So supplementing, potentially even at some point replacing a lot of the human oversight and information gathering with high trust, virtual information gathering and oversight can potentially scale programmatic services. It can dramatically reduce costs and risk to UNCDF staff and partners so that you can take those resource and time savings and reallocate them to other areas, thereby amplifying and expanding services. That is exactly the type of model and pilot that we're working on with you. And not only is it a one-way thing where, you know, TruePIC can help UNCDF, UNCDF's feedback is incredibly useful back to TruePIC as we continue to iterate and engineer this technology so that it works better and faster and more efficiently, particularly in the more difficult operating environments. Like you said, not just New York or Berlin or London, but you know, in Uganda or Malawi or, or the DRC. So it is an incredible partnership and one that we are excited to see grow and become a model of piloting and identifying some of the world's most challenging problems and applying tech to it. Sometimes it may not work. Sometimes it will work. But having that risk appetite and going after it in good faith, I think is something that not only UNCDF does well, but I think other UN agencies really need to start applying that mentality. I absolutely hear you there. And I can say from the UNCDF standpoint, at least pre-COVID, and I think originally and the partnership was predicated on the thinking of how to deliver images that could inspire confidence among our donors, particularly donors that are also 
represent democratic governments have to repeatedly make the case every year for budgeting for operations. And so the proven utility of those dollars is very critical to ensuring that development programs continue. And so that's where I think the genesis thinking was, but I think over time what we've seen is there can be a utility for the technology in the context of, say, due diligence work that we do on businesses so that interested investors that are considering a small business in a remote area that has an interesting business model or interesting product, but they need a bit more information and a bit more reliable data to close the trust gap, we can provide them with that information about verifiable pictures about their operations, their reach, and things of that nature. Yeah, not to interrupt, but you use the correct term. Exactly. Close the trust gap, right? And information, uh, verified information, and images and videos, but even other technologies can help do that. And I think that is largely the crux of it. And different organizations and agencies might identify different trust gaps for different constituents that they need to close, but technology can be that ally to do it. Appreciate that insight. So I think we've covered a lot. This has been a great conversation. And I want to close by just asking you to reflect for a moment. Again, it's been great that you've been able to provide your time and you come to the show with a unique profile on the diplomatic side and the private sector side, but never quite leaving the development space, which I think is really both essential and admirable. Look for you to close just by thinking about, again, we're trying to be forward-looking in terms of the UN, and you've already answered this question a little bit, but if the question to you is, what does the UN need to do over the next five years that will help continue its dramatic impact over the next 75 years, what do you think that would be? Just, uh, you know, just an idea or two. As a whole, I think the UN is going to have to figure out how to maintain its objective and authoritative position when it comes to geopolitical conflict and discussion. It cannot allow itself to be seen as in constant allaying of member states' concerns by watering down information so to not anger member states, particularly the P5. And I say that as a diplomat who who served for one of the P5 countries. That is one. Another area is the UN is going to have to identify ways, and this is, I think, where technology comes forward, where they can really expand services, lower costs, and empower. And I think that's the key. It's partners and it's beneficiaries towards some level of sustainable progress, whether it be development, whether it be, you know, peace and conflict resolution. And I think one of the ways it can do that is by leveraging technology, cutting bureaucracy, and identifying real immediate ways in which pilot programs can happen that can address some of the bottlenecks that are currently taking place with the more arcane and traditional methods that it's been using. So those would be kind of two immediate things that come to mind. I know they're they're quite broad in nature, but that is what I look to as some of the biggest pain points. Inability to act sometimes because old and outdated methods, 
and uh, being too concerned by delivering hard, cold truth from the ground because of member state potential reprisal. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that honest assessment. I mean, I think we're having, frankly, the entire international architecture, including institutions at government level, are probably looking at the next 10 years and also given really the complexity of the challenges in front of us and not just COVID, but climate change still remains a critical challenge. Women's economic empowerment still remains a critical challenge. And I think I think a number of great institutions are involved in making those assessments. So and it's, it's a healthy thing to do. And this was a great conversation. Munir, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was Munir Ibrahim. Capital Musings is a production of the Policy Partnerships and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Fernando Theraus is our executive producer. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.